It'll be a two-part series, and so this evening we're going to begin by looking at what this concept means in Scripture and what it does not mean. And then next week we're going to unpack it a little fur- a little farther, and we'll get into some of the passages that are a little more difficult that folks have wrestled with, a little more difficult to understand. One of the most important questions we're going to answer tonight, or at least attempt to answer, is whether or not how we understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it means, and whether or not what seems to occur in Scripture should be deemed normative or non-normative. And I'll explain what that means in a little bit. And so we're going to open this evening by jumping into uh, Acts chapter 1. And we'll spend time in Acts, we'll spend time in Joel, and we'll also spend quite a bit of time in Numbers, a book that oftentimes is not explored in this particular discussion but has significant relevance to us. As we kind of, as we we bounce around just a little bit, as we get, start to explore and you start to open up in Acts chapter one, how many of you would say, well, how many of you were raised in a Pentecost, with a Pentecostal background? A Pentecostal background. About a third to a half, okay. How many have um, are familiar with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that idea, that concept. Okay, now I want you to be brave. How many are not? How many are not? Okay, good. I, I'm hoping there'll be a few. Good. Okay. If any any point along the way that I'm sharing, um, I say something that's a little hard to understand. I say something that is you know more complicated to to grasp you just have to let me know raise your hand and i'll clarify i'll explain i'm going to be trying to be very careful because i know oftentimes in this topic there's a significant variance or or span spectrum between those who have quite a bit of awareness of the concept and others who do not and oftentimes those notions uh some are built upon what somebody heard in a revival service 40 years ago, and others are what they've heard, you know, people talk about in a lobby, and others they've searched out for themselves. So we'll try to deal with a little bit with some of the myths and some of the realities, and I'll be very straightforward with you and very candid with you this evening. Uh, there, I don't have an agenda other than to try to proclaim the Word of God the best that I can with um, a lot of uh, discipline, a lot of care. Okay. Uh, my background, just a little bit, so that you'll have a little bit of understanding of where I come from. Um, I was raised in a Pentecostal church. Uh, I was taken out of my home for the very first time as an infant to go to church. Uh, they actually, I was taken home from the hospital, and I did not leave the home until I was taken to a church service. That was how my family operated. And so... If the church doors were open for anything, I was there Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, Friday nights. And at that time, you know, I was, I'll date myself, I was born back in 1970. So I was familiar with the Thief in the Night series. Some of you may be familiar with that. And that was the enactment of the, a lot of the Mark of the Beast and things of that nature. It also dealt with uh, the guillotine and what they would you know, potentially do to believers if it was post-rapture. Ra- post so that was the background I was raised in. And 
um, I've seen within this concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I was taught it at a very young age. Uh, and I don't want to unpack too much here because I don't want to... Um, I don't want to put too many notions in your head, but I've seen, I've seen that experience, that phenomenon very real, and I've seen the phenomenon very unreal, where it was counterfeited or it was um, falsified. And so I'm, I'm acutely aware of that. I don't want to share too much with my wife, but my wife, she was raised Baptist. And so when we met at a Christian Bible study when we were um, young adults, and I believe I was... 19, 20, maybe 20, 19, 20, and she was 18, so I am older than her, and, uh, and we've been married now almost 24 years, but when we met, uh, you know, we had to go work through some of these ideas, and so we talked about these pieces a lot, and, uh, you know, she had to work through teachings that she had been exposed to to help better understand what this phenomenon is. Okay, so I've given you a little bit of backdrop there, and that's a little bit about some of my experiences. I'll talk more about my experiences later, but uh, I really want to spend most time now in the scriptures. And so in Acts, let's get a little background of that. The book of Acts oftentimes is called Acts, and it's the second book in the volume of Luke's writings. Luke, of course, wrote the gospel according to Luke, and Luke had a very targeted audience, the Gentiles. Unlike Matthew and Mark, Luke is part of the Synoptic Gospels, but Luke takes a very different approach. Where Matthew really targets the Jewish uh, audience, and and Mark focuses mostly, as we mentioned before, it was more of he was writing. John Mark was writing through really through the the lens of Peter, Simon Peter, and and so his audience was also relatively Jewish. Uh, Luke really approaches the Gentiles, and that's where his gospel centers and it focuses. And he's trying to convince the Gentiles about who the Messiah is and how the Messiah. Because remember, he's not writing to the Jews. So the Gentiles weren't looking for a Messiah. So he's trying to convince the Gentiles that Jesus, in fact, was God. And that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And then he goes on to explain in the book of Acts, he tries to show the occurrences or the actions that then followed in the life of the church. Now, what's interesting is that in the book of Acts, some have described it as the Acts of the Apostles. And there's some value to that. But even the apostles' names are rarely ever mentioned. It might refer to the apostles, refer to the disciples, but their names are hardly ever indicated. The name that occurs most frequently is the Holy Spirit, 51 occurrences. And so one would argue that it really is the book of the the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the church would be a really good description of the book of Acts. The Acts of the Holy Spirit worked through the disciples. Now comes the discussion, well, and let me, let me back up just for a minute before we jump into Acts chapter 1. A few other pieces. The book of Acts was really a ca- captured the life of the church, the Holy Spirit working through it for the entire first generation of the church. Written somewhere around 62, 63 AD, you, you really captured about the first 30 years of the life of the church, its struggles, its difficulties. And then we see... Also, and it's very interesting in the book of Acts, that when, when, when Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, you had this notion where you see the life of Jesus, and then that's volume one, and then he picks up in the book of Acts. When he picks up in the book of Acts, what's really interesting is instead of it ending, 
it's left as a cliffhanger. It doesn't have a formal ending. You don't sense a conclusion in the book of Acts. Now, why is that relevant? That would suggest that Acts was written in a way which left us as a cliffhanger because the rest is yet to be written. That is, we are the church, and that story is not finished. Y'all understand? And it's the only book that's written like that in all of Scripture. It's the only one that's written as a cliffhanger. So those are some interesting observations about the book of Acts. So let's begin in Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through, excuse me, 4 through 8, and that'll give us a good starting point as we work through some of these important passages. So I'm going to read out of the NIV. I will have you all read at different points, but I just want to get us started because we're going to be looking at quite a bit of content tonight. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. On one occasion, while while he was eating with them, that being Jesus, Jesus gave them this command. He's speaking now to the disciples. He's eating with them. Do not leave Jerusalem. This is a command. But wait, and that's another command, for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, that can be translated also in the Greek as by the Holy Spirit. The notion there is the Holy Spirit is the instrument that's doing the baptizing. In other words, you'll see a play on this in the gospel narratives particularly. You'll see where they talk about John's baptism, and that is John is the instrument that's doing the baptizing, and it's, it's indicating an idea of repentance. Here we see that the Holy Spirit is the agent that's doing the baptizing, And the individual, again, is the recipient, but he is the agent doing the baptism. And that's an important point to note. So if you see the word with, you can also use the word by. In other words, in the Greek, it's what we call the term, it's an instrumental preposition. It it describes the instrument or the vessel that's doing the action. So let's continue from from there. For John, uh, so verse 6, continuing on. So when they met together... They asked him, Jesus, asking Jesus, Lord, you at this, t- uh, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the dates, not the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it's at this moment that Jesus is indicating to them that something wonderful is going to happen. And they are to wait. They are to be patient. They are to look forward to something. Again, these were all commands. But they recognize here that something unique is going to happen. Keep in mind, many of the disciples of Jesus were already followers of John. So they would have already been baptized in John's baptism. They were very familiar with it. They were recipients of it. But now Jesus is telling them that something more profound is going to happen. They're going to be baptized by somebody other than John. They're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. To say this is something that's very foreign to them would be an understatement because they don't really know what's going to happen. They have really no context, but they will be obedient. And so now, go ahead. Say that again. Yes, go ahead. For water baptism, the water indicated in the Old Testament cleansing, and, and that's the biggest notion of it, and, and that's the play on it for atonement, is it was a cleansing agent. 
So it, re it represented the cleansing that happened in a person's life when it comes to water baptism. But as far as Holy Spirit baptism, there won't be any water, of course, involved in that component. But th there's a different agent now. I would often describe this thinking of it metaphorically. And like all metaphors, they always break down. Water baptism indicates something that has already transpired in the spirit, in the heart. And so it becomes a shadowy image of something that happens supernaturally. The Holy Spirit's baptism is so unique and different because it's, it, if we were going to try to compare it again, it, it, we would describe it as the atonement where you had the slaying of the, of the bulls and the lambs, and what have you. And they were only a foreshadowing of the slaying that Jesus would experience. In the Old Testament, we'll look at that there were times where the Spirit of God came upon people. Can you all think of an example of the Spirit of God coming upon somebody? Can you give me an example? Samson, good example. Somebody else, a, a major prophet, a major writer of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Who wrote that? Moses. Spirit of God came upon him greatly. Remember when he would have, when you'd see the Spirit of God on him, his face would shine, and they eventually had a... They had to veil that because people would then know if the Spirit of God was on him or not. And so we had foreshadowings of the Spirit of God being upon people, but we had not had the Spirit of God indwelling people to the extent that we're going to talk about now. Even John the Baptist, remember that last week? We talked about how it said about, about the Spirit of God advancing violently. It began in the days of John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even when he was in the mother's womb. So we get glimpses of this type of involvement of the Spirit of God, but never to the point where it was going to become normative. And that's about to all change in this time. And so being baptized by or with the Holy Spirit, that is, that's the agent doing the baptism, that is a very different notion than something that we had seen before in Scripture. So let's press on a little further. We're now going to move into Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Again, I think we're going to be looking at 1, 2, 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 more passages. So I'll probably do a little bit of reading. Not because you can't, but I'm going to try to keep it paced pretty quickly tonight. Just so we can have some pieces to talk about. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Again, the day of Pentecost, as I've mentioned uh, in the past is the first fruits. It indicates when the Passover, when the Holy Spirit, uh, or the, the death angel, some would interpret that as the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of God, the angel of God, came and slayed the firstborn. Jesus, of course, was also the firstborn. But he slayed the firstborn, and now the Holy Spirit would come at a time of the first fruits. The first fruits from Jesus would now be sent to the church. What was Jesus' first fruits going to be to the church? We'll see. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Notice that the, the theme here is going to be all and one. We're going to see those ideas, those concepts of being united and together, allness and oneness repeated throughout this passage. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. 
because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Perinthians, Medes, Ammonites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, uh, Judah, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, per, uh, Pamphylia, um, excuse me, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So that gives us a bit of a description of how the disciples and how the apostles and all that were gathered together appeared when the Spirit of God was sent on the day of Pentecost in, the, in this, in this te- particular manner. And so we see them as they're in one place together as one people worshiping the Lord, the Spirit of God showed up. Now, we don't know how long they were praying. Historically, we, we interpret from Josephus that perhaps it was a few weeks. But there was a period of time in which they were pursuing and pressing in to, see, to seek God, to wait on what God was going to send to them, and then God sent it. on As his first fruits on the day of Pentecost, it arrives. And when they experience this, we notice that God, for, for his own reasons, decides to take control of them in, in some very demonstrative manner. And when he does that, it's not like you ever see them lose control here, but what you do see at least in their own lives is God begins to speak through them in a way in which they proclaim God. Now, let me pause here for a moment because this is one of the areas that oftentimes is misunderstood. When we think of prophecy and someone prophesying, there are two different meanings in scriptures for what it means to prophesy. Oftentimes in Western culture, that is our culture, if I said to you, somebody is going, somebody made a prophecy, how would you describe that? Just go ahead and talk out. How would you, what would you say that person's doing? In, in general vernacular, what would you say? Future events, Future events right? So what most of you think? It's okay. Future events, right? Well, in scripture, that is the least form of prophecy. It is the least common form of prophecy. Prophecy in scripture, the most common form, is declaring the acts of God. Not future acts, current acts. That is prophecy. And that's something that oftentimes is uncommon to us because that word in our language has morphed over time to really focus on something futuristic. But when in biblical times, prophecy, and as it's written in the Hebrew and the Greek, focus mostly on proclamations of the today. We might describe it as given a praise report. So at the time when the, when, when the Spirit of God came upon the apostles, they were prophesying, but it's not like we think of prophecy. They were declaring the acts of God, which was the most common form of prophecy. It's a very important thing to understand, quite important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we won't get into that. We'll get into that soon, but not yet. I don't want to jump into that one yet. We, we just want to at least talk about the concept. But I hear you, Charles. I hear you loud and clear. And that's in our language. So thank you. That's okay. Okay. 
Uh huh. Yes. Okay. I'm going to answer that, and we are not going to lie. The they, the antecedent would be those who are in the upper room. In other words, the they would be those who are present, saw. Now, how they saw it, I don't know. I don't know if, because Luke's writing this, Luke may or may not have been present when this occurred. We don't really know. So remember, he is writing as a historian. He's a physician, but he's writing as a historian. So we don't know if Luke was one that, that physically saw it firsthand, very well may have, or have, has gotten it from multiple reports. We do know he did a careful cataloging and journaling of what he then was able to put together. Um, I use the term in research, triangulization, and that is we get it from multiple sources to make sure that it's as accurate as possible. So whether or not he observed this or that he got it from multiple accounts, we don't know. So what that answers for us is we don't fully understand the tongues of fire. We don't know whether it was something that they physically saw with their eyes, spiritually interpreted with their spiritual eyes. I, we don't know. But evidently, based on the plural, we would assume that whatever they experienced, that the group seemed to experience the same experience. That is, they saw the manifestation in the same general way. Like observing in, uh, I hate to use an example of this, but an accident. You know, you see the accident. You might describe it different ways, but you saw the same event. And, and that might be the best way I could describe Because this would have been, I use the word term accident because an accident's unexpected. <laughs> this was pretty unexpected. You know, it wasn't something that they were, you know, they knew they were expecting God to do something, but they didn't have no idea how it was going to appear. But the wind comes in. That's important because the wind oftentimes signifies the Holy Spirit and the word wind and spirit come from the same Greek word. And so, and that is that pneuma. And so we, we see the spirit of God show up, appear in this way, but never is that particular experience duplicated in all the New Testament. And I think that's an important point to understand. In other words, if we, when we see the Spirit of God descend on the people in future experiences in Acts, we do not have any listing of tongues of fire. And it could be that this was because it was the initial event where the Spirit of God arrived in this capacity now post-resurrection Jesus Christ. Okay, I hope, hope all that made sense. So we don't see the tongues being duplicated. And so um, pressing on from here, what I want you to notice also is that when they did speak, it was understood. It was prophecy, but again, it was prophecy that was declaring the works of God, not declaring something in the future, which again is the most common form of prophecy and something that cannot go um, overlooked. Now we need to look at the rest of the book of Acts because what we see is we see the Spirit of God again working. If, If we think of the Acts in the book of Acts as being the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the church, we want to look to see when else does the Holy Spirit show up in profound ways. We see miracles starting to occur. We see the early church beginning to get formed. And then we see the Spirit of God arriving at different scenes. And as the Spirit of God is poured out upon people, 
there are some definitive, uh, definitive actions. Let's go first to Acts chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. And uh, do you all have anything to write on? Do we have anything to write on? Oh, good. Okay. Okay. So you might want to write some of these verses down, or if it's recorded, you can get the recording afterwards or listen online. Acts chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. Here we have an example of where the Spirit of God is poured out, and we have to make some, as readers, we have to, make, we have to ask some important questions. Uh, let's begin in verse 14, just to get, back, uh, get a little context. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So the Spirit of God is moving now into Samaria. In other words, now people are being saved. And this is going to be important as we unpack this a little greater. People are already being saved. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So these folks are saved. Uh, you know, just doing with a little bit of hyperbole here. If any of them had died, they would be ushered into the kingdom of God. No issues there. But they, the, the disciples had noticed that something wasn't altogether yet complete, and that was this component of the Holy Spirit, at least in the minds of the disciples. So then Peter and John placed their hands on them. Now, this is different. So think about it now. In Acts chapter 2, were there any laying on of hands? No. So Peter and, Peter and John here lay their hands upon these individuals, and they received the Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also the ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Remember, Simon was a sorcerer. He was one who, who, who uh, engaged in magic. And so Simon, as a sorcerer, believed in things that would get people's attention. You know, if you're a magician, you do things that what? Create a wow, create excitement. Otherwise, you're going to be out of a job pretty quick. You know, if you reach into your hat... And you don't pull anything out, people are like, well, I can do that too. You know, I mean, it's only cool if you pull out a rabbit or something even bigger. You know, so, I mean, it's, that's how it works as a magician. So Simon saw something. The scripture here is not, does not clearly indicate what he saw, but something was clearly observed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have offered money for it. Why offer if there's nothing to get? So... Simon, when the Holy Spirit descended upon these individuals, these believers now in Samaria, he wanted something, and that something um, was to have the same ability to do what the apostles just did. And of course, they're going to chastise him, but that's not our point today. Our point is, the Holy Spirit arrived, and something very demonstrative happened in this passage, though it's not indicated. So, let's press forward. Right now, what we have as a context is Acts chapter 2. In that occurrence, now let's move forward. Let's go now to Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 47. 44 through 47. Now we're fast-forwarding, and we're seeing how Peter now is at a Gentile's home. He's at Cornelius' house. And again, you can read these passages on your own so you can get greater context and greater familiarity but due to time, I'm going to keep my, my, my comments right to the scriptures that are most pertinent. And so Peter then, while Peter was still speaking these words, he's now speaking to them, talking about um, Jesus and his death and how they, they need to have that belief in him. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. So let's pause there for a second before we read any further. So again, like Simon the sorcerer, not that they're Simon the sorcerer, but he observed something. Now, the believers, the Jewish believers who were accompanying Peter, again, the early church going on, so these would have been pretty significant zealots because they weren't really welcome right now. You got to keep in mind, the church was starting to undergo some persecution. It was not popular to be a Christian. It was very unpopular. You put your life at grave risk, including your loved ones in your home and all of your well-being. So these folks had a lot of skin in the game, if you would. So they're joining Peter, and they show up, and they're seeing a bunch of Gentiles. They were dealing with the complex that, regrettably, we still deal with in our own country, and, and whether we like to admit it or not many times, is they had a bit of an elitist mentality, thinking they're better than the rest of the world. And so, and there's no offense on that. That's just how we are as Americans. And so here were the Jews, and they were, they were feeling a little bit of elitism, and now the Spirit of God descends upon the Gentiles, and they're, they're standing back. See, if they didn't feel that way, they would have expected it. But it was not expected. And they were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them, even as the Gentiles. And they went on to say, for they heard them what? Speaking in tongues and praising God. So now speaking in tongues and praising God are starting to put together a little bit in correlation. And why is that? Because when we know, going back to Acts chapter 2, and I mentioned to you earlier, what is the greatest common, most common form of prophecy? It's declaring the works of God. This is not surprising. This, this here would be very much in concert with at least that initial manifestation of when the Spirit of God was poured out on them. Okay, and get, keep in mind, now these folks, as at least would be indicated, they've already accepted Christ, and they were actually hungry for more of God. Let's now move forward again, and let's look at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, keep in mind, who did he find? Some disciples. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? These are already believers. They're, they're not unbelievers. They're believers. He was in Ephesus, and he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not yet we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, what, what baptism did you receive? This is interesting. This is a very interesting conversation. John's baptism, they replied. And then Paul goes on to rightly say, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, now here we see the placing of hands. This is only the second account, not in every account, but this is what he did here. And they, uh, the Spirit, Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. See the prophecy again? There were about 12 men in all. So here we see yet another event. And what we have to understand is that Luke could have said a lot of things. And when Luke's writing this in, in 60 AD, if this was very much normative and 
because each time, every time we see the Spirit of God des- des- described in the book of Acts as coming upon people, there was something very demonstrative that happened. Luke went out of his way to write this because in the early church, there would have been no need to be repetitive. They would have already known this. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, 30, it's, it's 60 AD. It's 30 years after Jesus died. This is how things are. This is life in the church. But now we're 2,000 years later. It's not normative anymore. It's not. Now, what I want you to understand here is that when we see the Spirit of God descending upon folks, something begins to happen to that individual. It's not the something that happens that's important here. I think that's been probably, in my view as a believer now, for close to 40 years, as a believer, I think that has probably been, and this is an opinion statement, the, the mistake that, the local, that many of the local churches have made who are Pentecostal in background. And that is, there's been too much emphasis on the manifestation and not as much emphasis on the relationship. The manifestation takes care of itself. You don't pursue the manifestation. You pursue the relationship. And I think that might be my biggest takeaway for you all tonight. As you pursue that relationship, I can't say it just happens because there was an intentionality. The disciples went up there and they waited. The laying on of hands, I really don't believe as, as a theologian now, and I'll put my theologian cap on because I would very much be classified as that way with my education and background. As a theologian, I would, I would suggest you tonight that the laying on of hands is not the, the laying on of hands, the act of placing a hand on somebody is not as important as that it demonstrates intentionality. You see what I'm saying? It, it, it indicates there was an intent an active intent for a pursuit of something. Because when I lay hands, if I come up to somebody and I say, I could say to Charles, hey Charles, and I move on, there wasn't, that, was kind of, that was kind of passing, wasn't it? But if I come up to Charles and I say, good to see you, Charles, we've just had a touch, didn't we? There's much more of an intentionality. So when I'm praying for somebody, it's easy to pray for somebody at a distance and it can be kind of distant. But when I come up and I, touch somebody there's much more of an intentionality and so what i want you to take away is that when the spirit of god when the spirit of god baptized these believers because it was baptism by the holy spirit that baptism was pursued with intentionality it wasn't well if it hits me great but if it doesn't oh well it was there was an intentionality and so, again, that's a relationship component. Now, in nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that these individuals who were baptized by the Holy Spirit were in any way, shape, or form superior to those who were not. There's nothing like that. If anything, it indicates, it indicates that there was a... Um, how can I best put this? So I'm, this, this is where I have to measure my words very carefully. It enriched their experience and relationship with God as an individual with God. 
not as a comparison of individual individual. This is an individual piece on our end. Now I'm going to take a time out. And we're going to look in Joel in a minute, and we're going to look. We, and we may, you know, we may say Joel for next time. I really want to get into numbers tonight. I really want you to see something there. Probably a passage that maybe none of you have ever really heard put into this context. I, I want you to grab it tonight because it's very important. But I'm going to take a time out and give you a little background on, on just my experience. My experience is not normative. It's just my experience. I was saved at the age of six. I went down to an altar. It was, um, it was a Sunday night, and I realized I needed God. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that I don't normally ever utter in front of anyone, but it is, um, it'll be important for context. Um, <clears throat> I was raised in a home which believed in God, but my mother had a lot of psychological problems. And so early on in life, she eventually took her life. But she spent a lot of times in hospitals, and she had a lot of problems. Uh, she was an undifferentiated schizophrenic with multiple personalities. She had some very difficult times. Um, but when she was in her right mind, very loving, very kind, and extreme on the capital E, intelligent. She was extremely intelligent. And I owe much to her in many ways. When I knew my mother and she was in her right mind, she was many of the reasons why I got to know the Lord the way I got to know the Lord. But when I was six, I realized I needed Christ. So I went to the altar and accepted Christ. But I was beginning to hear from the Lord from about the age of one and a half to two. And I still remember those, those conversations with the Lord like they were yesterday. They were very imprinted deeply into my mind. And the Lord would tell me a few things. One is, I am real, and I love you. And those were the two most common themes. I am real, and I love you. And I needed those themes in my life because of how my life would unfold in the years to come. Because I was given zero chance of ever surviving past the age of 16. Zero chance. God was very good to me. And so... Um, and that's all I'm going to say right now about that topic. But I was at the age of 17, had lived beyond my expected lifespan, and I had been a believer for 11 years already, was already called into ministry, and, and I was already teaching the church. I began teaching the church from the age of 12 and began preaching. I won my state in Bible, uh, Bible teaching at the age of 13. God was moving in my life, but I had never been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It hadn't happened. God was moving my life. I was witnessing to people. My fir the first person I witnessed to, I was six and a half years old and kept a young kid up at five and a half years old all night. And we searched the scriptures and read the whole book of Romans and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. That was awesome. That was a praise the Lord. Amen. And so that, that's, that's how God was moving in my life. It's just, it's how God was moving. But I had not been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It just hadn't happened. I hadn't really sought it. From the age of eight on, every day I prayed for God to give me wisdom because I knew that was something very important. And I had not stopped praying that every day because we all need God's wisdom. But, but I hadn't been baptized. And I was 17 years old, and I came to the right side. I still remember this. You know, these things don't leave you. Came to the right side. It was a Sunday night again. And 
I knew I needed at that time, for me, I was at the point in my life where I needed more of the Lord. And, and I didn't know what that meant, but I knew I needed more of the Lord. And I'd been raised in a Pentecostal church, but I had never really pressed in for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It just wasn't my, just, it wasn't, just, it hadn't happened. And that night I began to pray. And I don't know how long it was. Folks give me different recurrences, but I don't know, it was two or three hours. I was just praying. And um, church service ended, but people came up to me afterwards and said they just knew, I mean, no one went to lay hands near me because they could just feel God around that place. And God was working on me. And then my experience, and everybody's experience is different, and I'm not here to create a normative experience. I'm only explaining what happened to me. The Spirit of God fell upon me. And at that point, I had, I had gone from a kneeling position to a standing position, just worshiping the Lord. And my hands went up, and I didn't even realize that I wasn't speaking English anymore. I didn't. I had no idea. And it was reported, I guess, after the fact, because I had no clue, from about 10 to about 2 in the morning, my hands were up the whole time. You just try doing that. That's really hard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and then I collapsed. And they had to carry me and put me in my bed at 3 in the morning. School was the next day, and I still couldn't speak English. I couldn't, I couldn't, I tried, and I couldn't speak any English. It wasn't anything, it's just, that's how God hit me. But it wasn't the act or what happened to me that was important in the physical realm. What was important was that at that moment, I just wanted to be with the Lord in heaven. I had no interest in being here anymore. And my mind was so far away from earth and things of earth. And it was the greatest peace I ever had in my life. And someone could have said, I'm going to take your life. And I would have said, right now. Because <laughs> I was so ready to go. Uh, and that was the closest for me that I ever felt like I was to God in a sense of being in that type of, like I really felt like I was to the point where I was almost experiencing heaven. Um, and those things just don't leave you. Now, did that experience validate what God did in my life? No. What God did in my life validated the experience. Do y'all understand? So just starting to have an experience doesn't mean anything. It's what God's doing in your life. And it's the relationship that happens from as, as God's growing you and maturing you. I don't know why God moved in my life the way he did. I don't. I'm glad he did. But what I want to encourage you more than anything else is, after we go through these next couple of weeks, if you've not received the baptism by the Holy Spirit, I do encourage you to pursue it and to seek it and to pray for it. And we might even make opportunity, if, if there's a great interest, to seek after that. But do know this. It's not the manifestation you should ever pursue. That will take care of itself you pursue the baptizer. Say, you're, you're looking to enter into a relationship that is just another level of relationship. We all have friends, but how many best friends do we have? We don't have many because they're what? A best friend. And 
as we come to know God, we hope that as we become in that relationship with God, we get to know him more and more and more. And I would describe that as as much as anything else as entering into that relationship for you in a more profound way. Again, it doesn't mean that anyone's lost or anything like that. It's not like that. And I think that's where oftentimes folks have created divisions amongst Christians when there was never any attention. Okay, it's five till. If, if you're not offended, can we go to five after? Okay. No, we won't go to 7.30. I won't take you that long. I won't take you that long. We'll do part two. We'll do part two Wednesday, next Wednesday. Okay, so let's, let's look at numbers. I, I really want us to look at this passage. This is Old Testament. And what I want you to gather here is look at some of the commonalities between this occurrence and what happens in Acts because it'll help you see that what happened in Acts really should not have been a surprise, even though it was a surprise. Now we're looking again. This is the writings of Moses. He wrote the Pentateuch, Numbers chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 and 24 through 31. When we look at those verses, understand that you can read all of the passage, and that's a good thing, but I'm trying to be sensitive to time. So Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 through 17. The Lord said to Moses. Now, let me give you just a small backdrop. I should do that. The Lord had now sent manna from heaven. The Lord had sent quail. They were being fed, but the people were still kind of complaining and mumbling, and God was pretty much fed up. But God was going to still, he loved his people. So the Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. This is in the Old Testament way of saying, send me your best believers. Send me your best believers. Remember 70 in the New Testament? Yeah, you might remember that. When Jesus sent out the 70, it's interesting. Their parallelism is quite profound here. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. So this is the place where they meet God. Okay? I will come down and speak with you there and I will take I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. So now this is what when Charles asked a little earlier and I I did a little description about atonement and how in the Old Testament sins were not forgiven, they were the Hebrew is they were overlooked. So the sin stayed there. But God overlooked the sin, so they put the blood of the animals on it who didn't have an, had no willful. They, were not, they would not volitionally say, oh, please kill me because you sinned. You know, they, they didn't do that. They were like, probably like, really? You know, I thought I was your friend, you know. So, but, you know, well, someone's got to die. I mean, I don't know how those conversations went, but the animal was the loser. And so, uh, uh, you know... Their blood was applied and God overlooked the sin. In the New Testament, Jesus died volitionally, willfully, and voluntarily and was sinless as a human. And then God could look straight through the sin. So the sin was gone, look straight through it. And that's the Greek for atonement, straight through. Old Testament, overlook. Very important concept. Here we see with the Holy Spirit, 
we see that the Spirit of God is going to be placed where? Upon them, right? Not in them, upon them. Very important to understand that. You see the parallel between how the Spirit of God acted and how sin was handled. Sin was overlooked, Spirit of God came upon. Sin was forgiven, Spirit of God indwelled. Different idea. Okay? So now, let's continue on. So, then I may place my, my spirit upon them. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the spirit that is on you and put it, the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. This is one verse that gives us an amazing insight on why God gives his spirit that we can share the burden. You know, why does God, why does the Spirit of God baptize us? We can share the burden. Share the burden. Because one would say the burden becomes more noticeable. We begin, I would, at least I can only speak for me. I became much more acutely aware of the volume of sin in the world. I became much more acutely aware of the pain in the world, of the suffering in the world, of creation that cries out to be redeemed. And we're, we're part of creation. But all of creation, as we read in the book of Romans, Paul writes, is longing for the day of redemption because decay and death and hatred and disease has come upon all of this world because of sin. And so he put the Spirit upon them so they could help carry the burden. Very interesting concept. A burden would be carrying the needs of others, people. Because at this point, Moses was really, in a sense, burdened with all of the needs of everyone else. And now God was going to take that anointing that was placed upon Moses and place it upon these other elders so that they now could share in it. But it's interesting, Charles, he didn't ask to have it placed, ask them to share in that burden until the Spirit of God was placed upon them. That's a whole different issue. I'm not going to unpack that tonight. Okay, let's go now to verse 24 through 31. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took the spirit that was in him, on him, and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, you kind of get the, see this, Sean? Tongues of fire a little bit. When the Spirit of God rested on them, what happened? They prophesied. But they did not do so again. But there were two outliers. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad, you could use those pastors as superheroes, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all of God's people were prophets and that the Lord put his spirit on all of them. 
Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. I don't think I have to give too much commentary, though, do I? It's pretty awesome. It's easy now looking from the New Testament back, the significance of that passage. At that time, may not have been as profound. But those similar words would be shared later by Paul. And we'll talk about those words next week. And so... Spend some time looking in Acts. Spend some time looking in, in Numbers. If you've not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, start seeking after him and say, again, you don't seek the sign. Seek the baptizer. Seek the presence of God and just trust him. But again, something happens. When God baptizes Something happens. And in each instance, there seems to be some level of prophecy. And that prophecy does not seem to be anything future. It seems to be everything about proclaiming the work and the acts of God. And speaking as one person, it's, um, it's very freeing and very transformational. At least it was for me. So... Um, we're going to close in prayer. It's five after. I'm going to keep to my word. Heavenly Father, thank you for these men and women and young people. Thank you for allowing them to take time out this evening to be here, to ponder the scriptures, to allow the scriptures, I pray, to speak to them and to allow them to wrestle with those scriptures as they wrestle with their own faith, as they wrestle with how they understand their relationship with you. And Lord, more than anything else, I pray for each and every man and woman here that regardless of what they take or don't take from this session tonight, the most important thing is that they'll seek to be in, his, in a deeper and more re meaningful relationship with you, that you can use them in the ways that you've designed for them, in ways that will allow the world to be touched by the Spirit of God working through their lives touching other people because we do live in a very, very needy world and a world that is so, so desperately needing the love of Jesus Christ. We are so, so desperate. Help us, Lord, to have the heart of Jesus and may the Spirit of God work in us, touching others. And may he touch us in an awesome way that we can be used by his awesome power to declare the works of Jesus Christ for his glory alone. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you all next Wednesday night.